all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome once again to episode 188 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this would be the Belgian television show episode of the SLS Cast because it turns out that there is an actor, a Belgian actor by the name of Leo Matter, and back in 1968, he starred in the Belgian television show Article. 188. And with that little bit of random Belgian television trivia, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident Sony employee, Tim. Uh, you know, it kind of sounds like you're about to pass out while saying that. Like every time you say it, every episode, <laughs> it just gets quicker and quicker and quicker that I'm worried about your health. Oh, you don't have to worry about that aspect of my health. I just uh, like to have some fun with the vocal inflection, as it were. Do you? Do you like to have fun with your vocal inflection? Apparently. So yes. whatever, speaking of your vocal inflection, whatever happened to your uh, your career, your voiceover career? Didn't you like meet somebody while you were at work? And she was like, you have I a did. beautiful voice. And apparently my voiceover, uh, you know, I guess my... Uh, voice is just so bad that he didn't want to have anything to do with it. So. No. Never heard anything back. Although someone has recently expanded the voiceover world. Good old Rolstoke Jim. Did you see his announcement? No. What, is he doing Looney Tunes? No, he's actually going to be on radio with his show. His show is actually going to be on a local station for him. I believe it was 92.5. No shit. That's great. Well, good for him. No, I, I didn't know. hear about that. That's why I was like super, super excited. So congratulations, Revelstoke Jim. You did it. You've made it. <laughs> yeah, you've made it. Now don't fuck it up. Well, I mean, not that he would. I mean, you know, whenever we've Skyped in the past, you see in the background all of his freaking amazing, you know, his setup and all of his audio so I was like holy crap this guy is just like itching to go so he's ready for the show and now he's on the show with his show on 92.5 his his local 92.5 yeah, about to say we all have a 92.5 I think out out here yeah, it's, it's like a Spanish station <laughs> more than likely is out here as well so, anyways, so that's pretty cool, and uh, let's see here. I'm You're going on a trip tomorrow. I am. I am actually going out of town. Uh, so, I'm sure by the time that this airs, uh, we will have already officially reached out, but um, Miranda, Kitty, we, we, we may be needing an audible here for the next couple episodes, so um, be on the lookout. That's, I guess, all I'm going to say about that. Yeah, well, I'm going to uh, two states where they officially legalized weed. I'm going. I'm doing the uh, weed tour of 2016. <laughs> Sorry, kids. I'm not taking you to Disney World this year. We're going to the weed yeah. states. <laughs> That's right. I'm going to grown-up Disney World. I'm going... I'm going to Greensy World. That's that's where I'm going. Um, no, uh, we're yeah, we're we're heading up. My my mom and stepdad uh, came down 
last year and visit us in July, and they just said it was too goddamn hot here in Texas, and they didn't want to do that anymore. So this year we're going to head up there, and so since they are in the Seattle area, actually they're about, really they're about 45 minutes away with no traffic from uh, Seattle. They're in a place called Puyallup, which is close to Tacoma. And so uh, that is where they live, and so we'll be heading up that way, and so since we're going northeast, listen to me, northwest, uh, Jen has family in Colorado, so we'll be going via Colorado to go and see her family for uh, two or three days, and then drive on up to the Seattle area, see my family for a week, and then come back down and hit the old Grand Canyon in the family truckster a la Chevy Chase and the Griswolds and National Lampoon's Vacation. Do you realize what they have in abundance there in Tacoma, which you have to go to while you're there? They have a lot of, I mean, I used to live there, so well, what, they, what's, they have a lot of things. What, what's my abundance. highlight of all of Seattle? The drive through <laughs> naked coffee shops. Just tell your kids yes, to close right, their eyes. <laughs> drive through, get them a couple Americanos. I'll grab uh, I'll grab Jen and my parents, and we will make sure to go and hit the naked coffee shop drive through. Tell them Tim sent you. There. They'll give you the. I, I will, and uh, hey, you <laughs> they'll know, give you the Tim surprise. They might even might even know who you are, right? They know. I'm sure they know a Tim. Oh come on, you are the Tim. The Tim. So that's right. So you're the guy. Go- yeah, never mind. <laughs> so that's, so again, my life is full right now. Yeah. So, uh, what about you though? I understand that you got to, that that you got to see a former Beach Boy in concert. Yes, lucky the, the main Beach Boy, the the main Beach Boy that's worth actually talking about. Since Mike Love is a fucking piece of shit. Yes, I saw Brian Wilson. <laughs> I almost said Brian Williams last night. I I was ta- I was talking to somebody at work today <laughs> about the great Brian Williams concert I saw last night. And they were very confused. They were like, oh, he lies and plays the piano? That is right. Well, that's what his concert is. His concert is just an hour and a half of lies, right? I mean, you know, just tries to tell all the whoppers that he can. It's set to music. You know? <laughs> it's, a, it's a whole production. The cherry sounds of summer. Anyway. But I like Brian Williams. <laughs> I'd see it. I'd see it. But yeah, no, I saw Brian Wilson and Al Jardine was there and Blondie Chaplin was there and... He and they put on a, a nearly a two-hour show, but it was celebrating the anniversary of Pet Sounds, and so they played the entire Pet Sounds album, both sides of it, and it was just, it was fun. Brian Wilson's voice isn't all there due to his health, and for those of you who have seen Love and Mercy, you will know what all he has been put through, but. He had a great backing band. The light show was amazing, and Al Jardine is always great. And he did his songs that, that are that are fantastic uh, as well. And it was a wonderful night out at the Hollywood Bowl, so couldn't really go wrong there. Have you ever seen the Beach Boys or any variation of the Beach Boys? I saw the Beach Boys in Miami back in the late '80s, early '90s. The Kokomo uh, years. The time. Yes, the Kokomo years, because, yeah, uh, with the whole uh, cocktail movie and all that good stuff. So I can at least say I've gotten to see it. And then, of course, um, I even remember when uh, James Stamos was with them for, you know, like a year. Oh, so is that why they were on Full House? Yes. Because, did you say James Stamos or is it John Stamos? 
Is it John Stamos? Yeah. Sure, let's go with that. I thought it was James Stamos, but fuck it. Sound John Stamos. I'm kind of tired. Uh, my schedule's all wonky <laughs> because it's going to be all wonky with my driving, so I'm trying to switch schedules around. Um, so I'm sure I meant John. It's we'll just go with J Stamos for now. <laughs> just the letter J. J. J, just the letter J. Yeah, J. You know, J. Yeah, J. Dot. Yeah, J. J. Dot, dot yeah. Stamos. No, what's up, J. Dot? <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's really cool though, and. Um, I'm trying to think here. Did you do any? Yeah, did you do anything else that was that was fun and exciting? Yeah, and so or exciting. The, the cemetery thing. Went to the cemetery yes, to see a movie. Got to see the Sandlot. I'm the very, Sandlot, very and it was the first time I've ever seen it. I've I've went all through my childhood not seeing the Sandlot until I got to see it in a cemetery. <laughs> wow! In the middle of Los Angeles. So it was. I sincerely hope it was worth it. It was worth well uh, the significant other she loves the movie so it was her idea to go and see this is why we're friends exactly I mean, not in... you and I she and I because <laughs> she and... only yeah. she and I and that's why we still have the show it's because of her <laughs> that bitch now so I I went because I've never seen it and I've all I've only heard good things about it and I knew the reviews of it critically wise it didn't you know didn't fare too well but overall it's a damn entertaining movie. What's his name? Specs, the actor, was actually there uh, and nice. spoke for a bit beforehand. But, man, you just can't beat that pool scene. That entire pool scene is <laughs> absolutely brilliant, and I loved how they shot it. So, it's a, you know, it's a, it's not a bad movie. It's entertaining. Yay. Well, that's good. <sighs> Speaking of entertaining, do you think maybe we should attempt to be entertaining now? Yes, for once. Right <laughs> for once before you head out of town, let's be entertaining. Tries. We'll, <laughs> we'll see about getting to be entertaining. All right, well, we've got a little bit of email to check here first. And, of course, as always, you can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. Uh, first up, we actually have um, a Twitter follower to mention. So, of course, if you want to follow us on Twitter, that's at the SLScast. And apparently at the Gooncast uh, has decided to follow us there and it looks like it's a um a very free form uh you know stream of consciousness style podcast they just kind of get a whole bunch of guys together and talk so seems pretty cool uh they are of course from brooklyn so they've clearly got that going for them if nothing else and uh so thank you there guys for the follow uh of the goon cast as it were well not as it were because that's what that's what they are. Anyway, um, <laughs> we also have an actual email to read. Again, uh, Diana reached out to us, and she answered our query. She says here in the subject, horror defined. She oh, says, but wait, oh, wait, what was hmm. our query, though? Oh. Uh, for, those of, for those of you just oh, yes, tuning yes, for the, in for the first that's time. That's right. If you're, if you're just now catching up, we, we reviewed, two weeks ago, we reviewed The Lobster, which is the new Colin Farrell film. And we kind of felt... Tim and I basically felt like it was, um, depending on how you view certain things, either a dramedy or a dark comedy, um, you know, in that kind of a vein. And so Diana, our number one emailer, uh, you know, she's the reason we have an email address. She sent us an email and she had actually defined it as a horror movie. And so we asked her why. And here is her reply. I'm a poet and I didn't know it. All right. Her subject says horror defined. And she goes, hola, movie mavens. 
as requested, I give you my reasons for seeing The Lobster as a horror flick. And uh, spoilers abound in these reasons. So here we go. The slaying of Brother Dog all bloody on the bathroom floor. The hunting of people and spearing of the emotionless woman. The right of digging one's own grave and, quote, trying it on, end quote, for size. And the end scene itself of Needle in the Eye assumed. Enough? I say yes. She has that in all caps. Yes, in all caps. Thanks for the fun Saturday morning commute, as always, Diana. And we, of course, thank you for sending us that email again to the show at slscast.com. And you know what? Um, while I can certainly, I would certainly say that uh, in the context of just those individual scenes, I could see how that would be very tense and could be deemed as horror but i think in the context of the whole film that would just be the darker aspects of the movie that clearly stray away from the comedic aspects or the lighter aspects depending on how you look at it so um but sweet what about what about you tim do you agree does that kind of shift your view of the lobster nah not really (laughs) (laughs) no but i appreciate the email though we at least we know one person is listening I, I'm fairly certain more than one person listens. Um, I just don't eleven. Think, yes, eleven. Yes, eleven. And and <laughs> you know about nine or ten thousand bots. So I guess that's good. So we got that going for us, which is nice. <laughs> and uh, without further ado, how about we do some news? What do you say? Snooze news. Here we go, folks. It's the news. <laughs> First up from me, I've actually got a pair of stories here that I would like to read. Uh, They're both from Variety, and they are both brought to us by Will Tizard. So T-I-Z-A-R-D. So Tizard, Tizard, Tizard. I apologize if none of those are correct. The first one is Michael Shannon. Indie actors shouldn't be working for free. These are both interviews. And I think this... like, I get where Shannon is coming from, but I kind of think they focused more on one small aspect of this interview. So, uh, let's see here. It says, the question is, are too many great actors willing to work for almost nothing if offered a great script? And Shannon responds, quote, yeah, it tends to be the model nowadays. I've come to the point where I'm going to start putting my foot down. I mean, a movie like Complete Unknown is basically like a volunteer effort. That's why you got to take advantage of these film festivals. This is kind of your reward for making the movie. Stay in a nice old hotel. Um, and then let's see here, but can you, and the question then follows, but can you blame actors for wanting to do challenging prestige work at almost any cost? The answer quote, I think as a group, actors need to stop enabling this behavior. There's no reason it should be that way. If someone has got a good script and you want to put good actors in it, then everybody should be taken care of. We're not asking for millions and millions of dollars. It's gone too far in the other direction. Really? If it was just me, I wouldn't care. I probably would do it for free, but I have a family. Um, and I'm, I mean, there's, there's more to it than that, but I wanted to really just kind of zero in on those two questions since that's kind of what the lead from the title uh, more or less intimates. Um, 
And then kind of contrast it here with Charlie Kaufman's interview here. And one of the questions that he's asked about about his films and the success thereof would be, and a sign that your stories are hitting a universal human nerve that's not limited to U.S. audiences? The response is, quote, it's always the thing you imagine when you're starting out or fantasizing about your career or something, to touch people, individuals. Like someone says, this moved me or was important to me. And quote there. That's the next question. But the process of creating these stories seems particularly torturous for you. He goes on to say, quote, it takes me a long time. I'm not fast. And yeah, it's always worrisome, especially when you're not fast because the pressure mounts to deliver something. It's hard. It's hard for everybody. I think when I wrote Adaptation, a lot of writers felt that mirrored their experiences, their experience. So I figured it's not unique to me. And let's see here. Do, do, do. I've got to jump around a little bit because I'm trying to. Because this particular article that he has, Charlie Kaufman's, on indie filmmaking, quote, I have to have one commercial success, end quote. Um, and it's really kind of interesting. I, I would definitely encourage you to read both of these articles, again, from Variety.com, both written by Will Tizard. Um It's that everybody kind of feels like the indie circuit has kind of become where you go for that quote prestige work end quote uh that it is not necessarily low rent but because the audience factor is def is truly definitively smaller we see that it just doesn't seem to be something that's profitable in terms of throwing lots of money at it on the flip side though Maybe Michael Shannon does have a point. Like, you know, hey, how about instead of ten thousand dollars and scale, maybe I can just get, you know, two hundred and fifty grand and then let's, you know, try and up amp this movie up a little bit. Uh the thing is though, is that while I agree that I think people like Charlie Kaufman really do have commercial success better than what they feel. Uh, and I mean, you know, obviously when we think commercial success, we're thinking movies that generate a pretty solid profit. Definitely can be launching pads for careers, um, creating solid names for great entertainment. But at the same time, most people think of commercial success, and I believe that's what Charlie Kaufman was getting at in his uh, interview you know, we think of Guardians of the Galaxy, billion-dollar movies, right? All the tent poles and the big franchises. But at the same time, that's kind of the problem. And I think that as we, you know, when the inevitable crash comes, because I, I'm telling you it's going to come, it that's when the indie market is going to have their time to shine because people are going to flock to those movies because that's going to be the fare that's available and it's going to really start, you know, being what people want to see. Not just it's initially going to be what they have to see, but I think it's going to drift into what they want to see. So definitely check over check out these two interviews, uh, both at Variety.com. And what do you think, Tim? Questions, comments, concerns on the indie filmmaking process? Does Michael Shannon have a point? Do you think people like Charlie Kaufman really have to have that big, huge blow up before they get? better budgets despite delivering um time and time again uh for, very yeah, decently for sure yeah i mean people get lucky i mean you now now you're seeing people like the guy who oh, damn i can't remember his name who did Jurassic world his for his indie movie that he made right beforehand was 
the time machine one, the uh, uh, safety night guaranteed. Mm-hmm. And he went from doing that to doing a big budget movie. And it's happening also, like the the guy, Gareth, I can't remember his last name, Gareth something or whatever, he did Looper, which, you know, was a, was a modest hit, and it wasn't a super big budget film. He went off and now he's doing a Star Wars movie. Duncan Jones, he started off doing Moon and Source Code, which were lower budget movies, and then he went off and did Warcraft. So you're seeing a lot of especially younger indie directors moving up to making these big, crazy movies. But that doesn't guarantee that these movies are going to be good. Unfortunately, indie prestige, I guess, is the norm. And it's been the norm kind of for a while now. And unfortunately, I think it's going to keep... It's going to stay like that because we all flock to, uh, especially me, I flock to indie films because I enjoy them, like Swiss Army Man. You're never going to see a big budget movie that takes as many chances as that film does. And I like the movie that much more, and I appreciate it that much more because it was made by two guys who just, who makes music videos and they created the movie that they wanted to create in, in, in their own really unique, interesting way. And is that movie going to do well box, you know, uh, in the box office? No, but it has two great actors and two stars in it that took the parts because they felt like the project meant something or the, the movie would amount to something. So unfortunately, though indie movies are more prestigious due to their subject matter and due to how they're made and how they're crafted, unfortunately, it's kind of like the starving artist's work, you know, like, I'm an artist, therefore I'm willing to not uh, forego making a lot of money so I can make art that I appreciate and I respect and I am proud of, opposed to, like, selling out and doing mass market art or doing, uh, you know, in movies, I guess, doing a Transformers movie or doing a, a Marvel movie. Then you also have a lot of indie directors that were asked to make a Marvel movie, but they turned it down because they didn't, they don't have the creative control. And that's kind of the thing, is that I think a lot of studios have realized that, well, we do better controlling big-budget movies than we would controlling smaller movies because, hey, we don't have the talent. So I I can understand what Michael Shannon is saying, and I can understand how uh, it's super difficult it is seeing how he's a little bit older, and a lot of the roles uh, are more age-specific, I suppose. It's probably a little bit more difficult for him to find work. And especially having a family, I could see that would be quite difficult. But I I really don't see this changing anytime soon. I don't know. Right on, man. Well, hey, at least it's something to think about. Real news. Seeing real, look at that. Real topics. Real entertainment. Hot topics. And also, you don't have movies like Spotlight and uh, the well, mainly Spotlight. Well, Spotlight was funded by a big studio, but Spotlight's even a small movie. That did well. And right. I think a lot of studios are trying to find movies like what Saw was. Saw, I mean, each Saw movie only cost a couple million to make, but they grossed $35 million. And it's the same thing with The Purge. The last Purge, it cost them $5 million to make, and it made $40 million in its first weekend. So studios are looking for that also. So Sweet. It's, it's crazy. But All right, well, what do you got for us, sir? All right, I'm going to jump in with two pieces of news. Uh, the first one, I just want to get it out of the way because it's it's not it's not the happiest of news. 
Uh, it's a R.I.P. A uh, film director passed away. Michael Cimino, the writer director of *The Deer Hunter* in *Heaven's Gate*, passed away at the age of 77. Via thehollywoodreporter.com, Michael Cimino, who won Oscars for Director and Best Picture for the powerful 1978 Vietnam War drama The Deer Hunter, died Saturday. He was 77. Oh, and this article was published on July uh, July 2nd, so uh, a week and a half ago. Terry Frameau, director of the Cannes Film Festival, announced the news on Twitter. Los Angeles County Acting Coroner's Lieutenant B. Kim confirmed his death to the Associated Press. His nephew, T. Raphael Cimino, told The Hollywood Reporter that his uncle passed away quietly at his home in Beverly Hills of natural causes. Deer Hunter actor Robert De Niro sent THR a statement warning the director, saying, quote, Our work together is something I will always remember. He will be missed, end quote. Despite his achievement with Deer Hunter, his next project, Heaven's Gate, 1980, capsized United Artists with his profile gate budget excesses. Subsequently, the words Heaven Gate entered filmmaking lexicon as an out-of-control, over-budget production. If you want to read more about him, do check out this Hollywood Reporter article. Michael Cimino, writer-director of The Deer Hunter in Heaven's Gate, dies at 77. It's sad. I mean, Deer Hunter is a great movie, and despite Heaven Gate's flaws, and its flaws are numerous due to it being an incredibly boring movie, an incredibly long movie, the cinematography is some of the best cinematography you will see in any film. So... If that, if you want to honor Michael Cimino in any way, definitely watch Deer Hunter and do check out Heaven's Gate. Next up, via SlashFilm.com, Skull Island director Jordan Vaught Roberts on poor storytelling in the social media age. This is an article written by Peter Skreta, and it says this. Last night, filmmaker Jordan Vaught Roberts sent off a Twitter rant about his worries that content and quality might be the losers in our modern society when it's the easiest it's ever been to create and share film stories and content. I thought this rant was worth sharing, not just because it comes from a filmmaker whom I admire, uh, the Sundance breakout, the Kings of Summer that he directed, according to the writer of this article, was great. Not really. Or because he's currently finishing a big blockbuster franchise film, Kong School Island, but because his point is interesting to consider. Browsing YouTube or the bevy of short films we get sent on a weekly basis, I often wonder the same things. Here begins filmmaker Jordan Vaught Roberts' rant on storytelling in the social media age. The average Vine, Snapchat, or Instagram comedy video is shocking similar to early Kinetoscope films, just made more poorly a hundred years later. Kinetoscope that lined the insides of arcades and Nickelodeons were often risque cheap. As crass and sexualized modern social media comedy videos are, maybe the level of a cheap thrill is on par with overall social growth. Or maybe they're just really poorly constructed videos with one-note bits filled with pretty people. Coming up in the comedy world and film world, it's so easy to be snobby and hate anything you think is cheap, yet popular. Judgment is rampant. In the early YouTube days, it would blow comedians' minds how the shittiest parodies with no comedic 
uh, with no comedic merit would get millions of views. I can't imagine what it would be like trying to cut your teeth as a filmmaker or comedian watching these poorly made videos rule the world. So there's really three options. One, my generation is the old guard before we even had a chance to be the new guard because of of way the internet disrupted our generation. Two, an objective one-on-one comparison of the average Instagram video to a kinetoscope would say we've regressed over 100 years in storytelling. Three, social media is so new that these shitty videos reflect the early growth of film as an art and hasn't come into its own yet narratively. Somehow the truth is a dark and twisted mix of all three in an age when people are famous primarily for their personality and not their craft. I don't know what any of this means for the value of experience. The internet, VR, and video games are often more compelling experiences to the modern person than film. It's amazing, exciting, and terrifying. Journey PS3 is one of the most meaningful experiences I've ever had. I believe in the potency and power of VR too, but frankly, I've seen how kids react to shit online that I think is garbage, and it is incredibly meaningful to them because nothing has value anymore because nothing is special, and thus everything is disposable. This isn't me debating film versus new media. This is about me spiraling over craft and merit. If something is meaningful to someone, it's not my right or job to say it's not meaningful. However, we're allowed to debate merit. I just remember once standing in a museum and being completely convinced a certain painter was a load of shit. I told the person I was with. They said, well, not like you can do better. I remember seething inside thinking, That's not the fucking point. Anything can be judged based in technique, merit, intent, construction, theory, application, etc. Just because I can't make a better sandwich doesn't make the one I'm eating right now not a bad sandwich. Just because I can't build a car doesn't mean I can't drive a car and say, this thing sucks. End all quotes there. The article does go on for a bit more. Again, Skull Island director Jordan Vock Roberts on poor storytelling in the social media age. I guess this is an op-ed written by Peter Scaretta. And again, the three the three points here, Matt. What do you think when he says that these are the three options? One, my generation is the old guard before we even had a chance to be the new guard because of the way internet disrupted our generation. Two, an object one-on-one comparison of the average Instagram video to a kinetoscope would say we've actually regressed over 100 years in storytelling. And three, social media is so new that these shitty videos reflect the early growth of film as an art and hasn't come into its own narratively. Um. Okay, it's, I, I hate to sound like a cop-out here, but it's kind of all three um for example everybody knows what a gif is right and despite whether or not people want to try and call it gif or whatever the fuck um we're gonna go with gif if you look at a gif gifs can be as long or as short as you want and generally they're 10 seconds or less um but i have seen gifs that have gone for like two or three minutes before and the interesting thing about that is that it is ostensibly a silent movie. And here we are in the 21st century and one of the quickest ways to get somebody's attention and captivate them is with a silent fucking movie. Um, 
we also do have the uh, the ability of we see the idiot teenagers nowadays who are doing the Snapchats and dick pics and stuff and all that kind of stuff and ruining people's lives and, you know, child porn distribution and shit like that because they're all underage doing... Yeah, so I can see how that argument for we're actually regressing in terms of the content and stuff uh, could also be valid. But we're also finding that um, with Vines... And, I mean, you, you get six seconds to be able to tell a story. And that's, again, extremely early cinema. And while it's somewhat ring theory in practice, it still shows that people are willing to look at things in a through a technological lens. And yet, whether by accident or by design, they fall back to things that have been done before. And it bring and it, and in some ways it makes it all new. So I would say it is kind of a mixture of all three. Um, it's just that the cream rises to the top. So hopefully we can take the best of these things and continue to move it forward and integrate it into new forms of entertainment and hopefully somewhere down the line new forms of film. Yeah, I kind of can compare this in a way to SNL now and how a lot of the young people. Younger people love the current SNL because they just do such... Their impressions are so great. And so they look at the, those impressions on the surface level and they're not looking up... Uh, they're not they're not really focusing on the content itself and whether if the content is creative, they're just jaded by the creativity of, uh, of a performance on the surface level. And more to the point with uh, SNL... SNL, uh, as everybody, most everybody should know, stands for Saturday Night Live. And yet, virtually all the most popular things from Saturday Night Live are their digital shorts, which are pre-recorded. So, <laughs> so <laughs> I mean, we're, we're literally um, kind of going back and forth within the same medium that then gets posted online, you know, and also something else that has been very good, which is one of the reasons why Jimmy Fallon has been so popular with the tonight show, despite whether or not you enjoy his brand of comedy is that he embraced YouTube. He embraced technology and Twitter and all that kind of stuff. And he is constantly using that and creating bits that can constantly go viral so that people are always wanting to see what they do next, which leads them to try the tonight show before they try something else, whether or not they like that show because they've constantly got stuff going on. And Conan as well really took that after he left and started branching out on his own. And he does a lot of the similar things with his interviews and his segments from TBS that also make it onto YouTube and whatnot. So, I mean, we really are kind of seeing it from multiple perspectives in different genres and styles. And I think more to the point, it's branching out from television than film. But, I mean, it's still the internet and it's still the technology that kids and people are using. So that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Very good. Uh, from latimes.com by way of Stephen Borowake. Uh, so I hope I said that right again. Goodness gracious, my grammar is failing me here. My phonics, I don't know what happened. Uh, the title of the piece, Under the Sun documentary catches North Korea with its guard 
down. And here we go. During a scene in Under the Sun, a North Korean minder orders uniformed workers to form a line on the factory floor before they speak on camera. Quote, save that joyfully, end quote, orders the minder, a bespectacled, middle-aged man, as he prods the laborers to talk about how much they love their work producing soy milk. What the minder didn't realize, however, was that the cameras were already recording, and his pushy efforts to concoct an idyllic scene of industrial glee had all been captured. And this is interesting. This is actually a Russian documentary, and yet, uh, as we come to find out, it's, I mean, it's going to be in a format that um, English-speaking people will be able to um, understand as well. But this is something that's really, really cool. There was a whole bunch of negotiation that had been done by the Russian government with the North Korean government in order to get this documentary made because it follows a little girl who is basically entering the North Korean child service. And so these are the kids that you always see doing the performance stuff and the acrobatics, and uh, they do the big, huge shows in the stadiums and stuff, and they're the only one playing the instruments and doing the orchestra and everything, right? Because they're the future of North Korea. And so these are kids who are singled out, and their families actually get to live better than the other 97% of the country. And yet at the same time, the demands are just so completely unreal, not just on the child, but the family as well. And so they spent a whole lot of time getting all of these agreements done and everything was, you know, going through. And this is how they pulled off this documentary. Manski and his crew were allowed to film only approved scenes in specific locations, and the North Koreans would delete any footage they deemed unacceptable. But Manski had a plan to get around the censors and capture unscripted footage of life in the reclusive state. He left the digital cameras rolling all day as the team of North Koreans assigned to oversee the shoot manufactured each scene, coaching subjects on what to say and how to say it. At the end of each day, the North Koreans would go through the day's shoot, but in a risky move in a country where foreigners who act out sometimes spend years in jail, the crew kept duplicate memory cards of all footage that they then snuck out of North Korea. So... I think this is really fascinating. Um, something that's really interesting as well is that Mansky himself, um, his name is Vitaly Mansky. He was actually from Ukraine, born in 1963, and so he grew up in Stalinist Russia. And so he, ha he, of all people and of all filmmakers, understands what it's like to grow up one way and understand that the world is not the way you were told. And so... Now he's actually presenting the, his view of what the North Korean life is like through that lens of understanding. So I'm just like super excited to see uh, this film as soon as I can. And it's a very lengthy article. So I highly encourage you to read the whole thing. Um, I definitely hit the highlights for you there, but there's there's really more more meat to it than that so again uh stephen borowick and it's the latimes.com under the sun documentary catches north korea with its guard down tim does this sound fascinating to you as well or is it just me oh or maybe yeah, no, or maybe it's more fascinating to me than it is to you but you know you still want to see it as well i don't know 
No, it is fascinating. Anything uh, related to North Korea absolutely fascinates me, uh, especially due to that I work at Sony and they kind of fucked us in the ass. So anything that gets them back, <laughs> I'm down. But yeah, I heard about this about a month or two ago. It seemed like it was on the news or something. They actually showed footage. I don't know if it was video footage or if it was if, or if it was sound or not. But you could actually hear one of the instructors just belittling this poor child who has been just working and trying to dance all day long for the tourists and vi- uh, visitors and whatnot. So it's. It's amazing. So I'm looking forward to seeing it for for that. Awesome. All right. Well, I'm going to go ahead and end my news there. So bring us home on the news, sir. First up, if you're a Big Trouble in Little China fan and an Escape from New York fan, guess what? There is a crossover comic coming out via entertainmentweekly.com. Big Trouble in Little China and Escape from New York crossover comic exclusive first look. You can uh, check out this article and see some pics. Uh, this is written by Car- uh, Clark Collins real quick. Do you believe you can never have too much Kurt Russell? Then, A, congratulations for having such good taste, and B, you're going to love the new Big Trouble and Little China Escape from New York crossover comic from Boom Studios. Written by Greg Pack and illustrated by Daniel Bayless, the title re- uh, finds Big Mouth truck driver Jack Burton transported to the dystopian future of 1997 where he meets his taciturn eye patch sporting doppelganger snake pliskin made with the blessing of filmmaker john carpenter who directed both big trouble and escape from new york the six-part series debuts this october the announcement about the crossover comic follows the news that boom studios is publishing two nonfiction books this year by Tara Bennett and Paul Terry to mark the 30th anniversary of Big Trouble. The first, the official making of Big Trouble in Little China, arrives in stores this August, while the second, the art of Big Trouble in Little China, is out in November. Exciting stuff. (laughs) And then finally, actually, I'm just going to go ahead and end with this. I'll save the other two for uh, another time. Via yahoomovies.com. Ileana Douglas on Rob De Niro in How Art Doesn't Exist in Hollywood Anymore. And it says this, On his podcast, author Brett Easton Ellis had an extensive interview with Ileana Douglas. Douglas has had an impressive acting career, appearing in numerous classic films alongside acting royalty. That royalty includes Rob De Niro, Cape Fear, she worked with him on in Goodfellas, in uh, Guilty by Suspicion, or the three films that they both appear together. During his conversation with Douglas, Easton Ellis brought up the acting legend, saying, quote, They talk about De Niro walking through roles, just collecting the money, and I don't think that's true, end quote, he said. Quote, I mean, I've heard from financiers that if you have the money, De Niro will be in anything you have, and that he seems to have just checked out, end quote. Now, Easton Ellis wasn't completely critical of De Niro's post-Goodfellas career, bringing up two recent examples of great De Niro performances in Silver Linings Playbook and The Intern. So yes, De Niro still has his fastball at age 72. But that being said, when De Niro does movies like Dirty Grandpa, one can't be forgiven for wondering if the man who starred in Raging Bull and The Deer Hunter has given up. Douglas weighed in, making sure to say that 
She considered herself as an, quote, outsider, end quote, on this matter, saying, quote, the environment that was created to play and to make a work of art, and that no longer exists, end quote, Douglas lamented, quote, where on the set of Cape Fear, De Niro caught somebody looking at their watch and the person is yelled at because it was like, we are making art, end quote. Douglas basically said, don't look at De Niro, look at the people who are making the film around him. Quote, it must be very challenging to be in an environment where it's like, yeah, we have an hour, let's get this shot. So if nobody else cares, why should you care? End quote, she asked. Douglas still believes De Niro is capable of greatness, saying, quote, I still believe it's there, I still believe it's in all of these great actors, but you have to create the environment for them and appreciate them. End all quotes there. Matt, what do you think? Do you have any comments, questions, and concerns about uh, the crossover comic book of Escape from New York and Big Trouble? Or do you have any uh, questions, comments, concerns regarding um, Ileana Douglas's comments on uh, making art out of movies and creating that atmosphere for the actors to produce good work and to want to produce good work? Well... Okay, as to the former, I'm super excited. I don't care. Anything that has a crossover with Big Trouble in Little China, I'm willing to give it a shot. I'm I'm totally down. Um, as to the latter, I think uh, you have to be careful with broad strokes like that because, um, I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, you really it really is an individualist ideal. Um, each person has to be responsible for what they bring to the table and what they create or don't and yeah maybe De Niro's gotten lazy maybe De Niro doesn't care or maybe he has reached a point where it's not that he doesn't care it's that he already you know he's already he already has a career that's defined by amazing projects and now he wants to do things that he couldn't do then because these are more fun for him these are the things that you know help him be excited um, about the life that he wants to lead and the places that he gets to go to be paid to to do these things. So I'm not saying that she's completely off base, but I think that it really is a case-by-case basis kind of thing. So that's all. Makes sense. Although I, I kind of agree with her. It's just, I mean, it's like with Michael Shannon. He'll work with great directors that he can trust if he's not making a lot of money, but movies like Dirty Grandpa and all the other stuff he's been in, the two little fuckers, for example, it's mm-hmm. you know he knew he was going to make money and the movie would do well, so didn't really hurt him too much. And when it comes down to it, it's a job, and you have to make money somehow. So De Niro, every time I, whenever I look at him, I still think of Raging Bull and Goodfellas. So nothing will tarnish that. And that's my news. All right. Well, as we discussed last week, we do not have any bonus segment for this weekend. Also, because of my uh, travel plans, looks like we're not going to be doing a bonus segment uh, next week either. So we're just going to get right into the movies. And uh, or at least I think that is the plan. We should just get right into them, right? Right. So then here we go, folks. It's the movies. Hey, 
This week's movies are Swiss Army Man, The Fundamentals of Caring, and Raiders, the story of the greatest fan film ever made. Where do you want to start there, Tim? Now, I don't know what your favorite and least favorite movie is, but I was going to go with mine first, my, my, my least favorite, and that was The Fundamentals of Caring. Uh-oh. Rat row. Well, regardless, it sounds like we'll leave the best for last. So, <laughs> but it, maybe not not necessarily meaning that it like the best conversation movie for last <laughs> is what I meant. I guess you will find out. All right, fundamentals of caring, 2016 American drama film. Although I would say it's definitely more dramedy. Uh, written and directed by Rob Burnett, based on the 2012 novel of the same name by Jonathan Evanson. And it stars Paul Rudd, Craig Roberts, and Selena Gomez. Uh, what we have here is a gentleman by the name of Ben, played by Paul Rudd. He actually um, is in a very dark place in his life and has to get a job as a caregiver in order just to get any kind of money coming in the door and of course his first job is to take care of trevor played by craig roberts a kid who has a form of um, multiple sclerosis or not uh, multiple sclerosis but um oh what the what the hell is that damn disease the one where you can't walk and use your hands all too well well, I mean, multiple sclerosis kind of does that yeah. as well. It's the one that Jerry did. The Jerry's kids, the whole telethon thing. Muscular dystrophy. Muscular dystrophy. Thank you. Oh, my God. It's a form of muscular dystrophy. And uh, so he is expected to basically attempt... To, uh, if he makes it to 30, it'll be amazing. Um, and so... Much like a coming of age uh, slash midlife crisis buddy film, uh, Trevor has things that he can learn from Ben and vice versa. And they embark on a little road trip. And that's where, of course, uh, Selena Gomez's character of Dot comes into play. Um, all right, so here's the thing. I thought that this movie was highly entertaining. I think that um, it was definitely tailor made for Paul Rudd, and I'm so, and I'm only I'm I'm kind of getting concerned that um, he's falling into a typecast kind of situation because while he can definitely do characters with depth and he can definitely do lighter side stuff, just he is so known for his snarkiness and everything that you stop seeing the potential for a character to grow and then it you just kind of see Paul Rudd. Now, that's not to say he does a poor job because he doesn't. And honestly, I thought Craig Roberts was fantastic as Trevor. Um, just the acerbic wit that came out of him was fantastic. Uh, and, and like, Selena Gomez, I don't know. She... I've never seen anything that she's ever done, to my knowledge. I didn't see the Spring Breakers thing. I didn't see Wizard. She was on that Wizards of Waverly Place, I think, on Disney back in the day. I know that my wife and kids watched that show. Um, so I've never really experienced her acting or anything like that. And I 
maybe she had a song too. I don't, anyway. Um, so, you know, clearly I am not hip here, but at the same time, she looked weird. And so while it like, she seemed to kind of own the character and the acting seemed to be decent. Um, just her look, I don't know if that's costume design or just because she's looks different now or whatever. I don't know. It was just really hard for me to buy into this character, especially with fake smoking. I hate fake smoking. I have no problem. If you are a smoker, great. If you're not a smoker, fine. But if you're going to smoke in, in movies or television, fucking commit or just don't smoke. Just the character shouldn't smoke because it's patently fucking obvious and it's annoying as shit. Um, there's also elements of tragedy sprinkled in especially in the in the character of ben and his backstory and the thing is is that instead of just acknowledging this tragedy and actually letting the and letting the film and the characters really build on that from the get-go so that they could actually have real dialogue and they could have real exchanges and you could see progression they do the they do the typical thing where where everybody knows about it within the first 10 12 minutes but you don't get to find out about it until the very end of the movie which is like what the shit really it's completely artificial in that regard despite those things oh and the ending the very last scene of the movie uh i'm going to spoil part of it um by not telling you what happens but how it was done is completely done in blue screen and cgi and did not need it in any way shape or form so what could have been a just really funny um definitely a non-traditional and zany ending to this movie uh was completely ruined by the fact that you're going why is this blue screen or green screen why is this cg what the fuck is happening here so there's that Despite those major flaws, the film still manages to connect. Um, it's just a, it's just a fun ride. Um, of course, given that it takes place in the Pacific Northwest, it's beautiful cinematography. It's almost cheating, in my opinion, <laughs> when you, when you shoot in purposely beautiful places like that. It makes the cinematographer, uh, cinematographer's job super easy. But at the same time, even though even with those flaws i still was i i still had buy in i still wanted to watch this movie i still felt for the characters um i definitely wasn't sappy uh and again the acerbic wit was right up my alley so i thoroughly enjoyed whenever they were making fun of each other and pulling pranks on one another and everything so I give this movie four stars and I give it four stars only based on the strength of the fact that I did buy into these characters and the, that acerbic wit that I found to be so funny. Um, and it just barely, barely, barely ekes in at that four stars. I'm, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and hold on to it. So four stars for me. What do you got there, Tim? You know, this movie is actually surprisingly funny. It's, Paul Rudd in movie playing a character that you've never really see him seen him play before. He takes an emotional turn, though the goofy, quirky Paul Rudd that we're used to seeing in like Anchorman and Forty Old Virgin pops out in a couple comedic instances. But the chemistry between him and Craig Roberts, who plays Trevor, is just 
dynamite. You know, they play well off each other, and especially whenever they're doing the 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 god awful pranks that they pull on each other. Mainly, what Craig Roberts plays on Paul, uh, uh, not Paul Dano, that plays on um, Paul Rudd's character. It's just fun to watch and heartbreaking to watch, and it's great to see their relationship come together by films end that's not to say that the movie doesn't have a lot of issues and not many issues but the issues that it does have detracts a star and a half from this film there's a couple for instance there's a couple repeating jokes that i believe were in poor taste i love poor taste but in this instance when the movie wasn't an all-out raunchy comedy and it was supposed to be true to life Craig Roberts, the character, the guy who plays the the boy with uh, muscular dystrophy, who doesn't have muscular dystrophy, cracks these jokes and says certain things to where I cannot believe somebody who is going through such a tragic illness or who is who is having to put up with that illness would constantly make. So that just kind of bugged me a little bit. Just in that instance, I just thought poor taste. Uh, I thought Selena Gomez's character, though I think she is a fine actress, I thought her character was probably the film's greatest downfall, other than the tail end of the movie. She plays the super angsty love interest of Trevor's, who speaks her mind and offers a complete contrast to the other characters. And you've seen this character before, this type of character before. Every time that somebody says something, she always has something snarky and stupid to say. If there is some tension, or if somebody's fighting, or if somebody's wronged by somebody, she has to pop in and, and make it known how she feels. And so, if anything, she just felt like the sore thumb of the bunch. And then lastly, Matt already mentioned this, the god-awful use of green screen and an in-joke at the tail end that completely shits on the heartfelt moment that the scene was building up to. It's bad. And we're not just saying, like, we we can notice that, oh, this is bad green screen. It's just there's... The scene leads up to this moment where they're surrounded by a beautiful landscape. They're, They're there. You know they are there. They are at this place. And then for this stupid, dumb helicopter shot and these weird close-ups, for some reason, they added it in and they had to shoot it in front of a green screen. And it is stupidly awful. So awful. It goes to show you how good all these other elements are because of how bad the ending is. But yet, the movie still falls on 3.5 out of 5 for me. Fair enough. All right, so where would you like to turn? Raiders. Raiders, okay. Raiders, the story of the greatest fan film ever made. Uh, This is a 2016 documentary that actually covers the history of a Raiders shot-for-shot remake that was made over the course of seven years' worth of summer vacations and uh, winter holidays by a group of uh, friends, and their subsequent grown-up reunion uh, with which they tried to film one last scene that was the only scene that really didn't actually get made right. Um... Here's here's the thing. This 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 movie's a 
about an hour and 40 minutes. And it tries to intersperse the history of this Raiders, this fan film, uh, that has definitely hit a huge cult phenomenon status and that thanks to the advent of bootleg videotapes and stuff because even prior to the advent of the internet, this film was still making the rounds. And they subsequently are at the same time trying to show the difficulties that are going into actually getting this one particular scene shot because it's a big scene it's the scene with the plane where indy fights the big burly german guy and they they fight as the uh like the flying wing it, you know does this little circle thing so um I think what the the problem for me, the biggest problem with the, with the film for me is narrative flow. I think that it would have been much simpler to have a two part documentary, and I don't mean it needed a full fledged part one and then a second film, but just break the movie down into two parts: the history and then the scene. And so you could actually appreciate more the difficulties that they were facing today having fully understood the history that went in to getting to where they were today instead of trying to mesh those two together in one fell swoop it just really felt disjointed and oftentimes kind of boring now that's not to say that this is a bad film it, it's not it, it's a it's it is a good documentary but I think it could have been so much more had it been told in that different way. And while I can certainly, um, I mean, you, you know, you, you definitely feel for these guys who both destroyed their childhoods by spending every waking moment on this shot for shot remake, but at the same time, truly lived their childhood dreams through high school, even that it it that is the core story and so you can have this really neat addendum that shows how they came back together and then do this one final scene that has its own little aspects of drama to it um but just more or less feels forced the the characters are really funny i mean because these guys as human beings are still characters and I mean, and it's, and, and I don't mean caricatures. I truly mean they're characters. If you, you know, they're, they're weird. They're nerdy. They're still, yet they're still fun and they still have a respect for one another. But there's still tensions that go between them. It's a true dynamic. And so I just kind of felt that because of that flow, it just kept taking away from the story and it slowed it down. And then it, had to try and build back that momentum again and so at the end of the day i give this one 3.25 out of 5 it is definitely a solid movie it's very decent it tells a great story um and i and i can't say that i didn't like it i just think that the the, the choices that the directors made in terms of how they wove the two tales together um just hurt it really bad and made it slow what do you got there, Tim? You know, I, I definitely agree with you uh, that 
the original filmmaking story when they, you know as they were boys making the movie in the eighties was so much more fascinating than watching them as adults trying to make an overblown uh, trying to shoot an over their their overblown final scene you know like why like like what the probably the smartest of the three of them uh the special effects guy that they had he came up and he was just like why are you building a plane as if you were using a real plane to blow up when if you were making when Spielberg was making it or when any other filmmaker would 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 try to shoot the scene for a Hollywood movie they would use a fake plane so no shrapnel is coming at you when you do blow it up so i just couldn't really quite grasp that in how this guy got himself into a job who has the biggest asshole boss ever but also maybe the coolest boss since the boss uh you know allowed his voice to be heard <laughs> in the documentary multiple times as as the guy is trying to call in to get more days off to shoot this I don't know, but it's the, the original story of them uh, making the movie is fascinating. It is an incredible, fascinating story about inventive people whose personal lives I really didn't care about all too much. Their trials and tribulations didn't do much for me as to hoping for them to succeed. But hearing about them as boys making this movie, their original filming attempts are a spectacle. You know, they are a marvel to watch. You know, wondering how the hell they were even going to begin to pull this stuff off, to pull to pull these shots off. And they have great, amazing creativity, and their imagination is something to behold. Because it is imagination, to this degree, is something that kids don't have now. I mean, not every kid, but most kids don't have it now. Like, I, when I grew up, in texas when it would rain a lot you know we i would watch a movie and if i found a movie that i loved i would kind of obsess over it and yeah maybe i wouldn't go out and film the movie but i would go out and play that movie like i loved ghostbusters so i'd go out and pretend i was busting ghosts but then i would come home and want to shoot something and, and make like a little a movie that kind of represented my feeling towards uh, what I love about Ghostbusters, and you really don't see kids doing that a lot now. It's all about playing video games and making YouTube videos of themselves playing a video game or watching YouTube videos of somebody else in Finland playing a video game that maybe they think that they would like. You know, nobody is being creative on their own and making creative stuff. Everybody wants their stuff to be seen. You know, they're not satisfied by enjoying and reveling in their own imagination. So in that regard, I, I enjoyed this documentary quite a bit. So I give it 3.5 out of 5. It could have been better, but I just can't argue. <laughs> I cannot fight with the imagination and the creativity that these kids all had. So 3.5 out of 5. Very good. All right. That is going to lead uh, leave us with Swiss Army Man, 2016 American comedy drama fantasy film. Written and directed by Dan Kwan and Daniel Scheinert. Uh, film stars Paul Dano, Daniel Radcliffe, and Mary Elizabeth Winstead. So what we're dealing with is a man by the name of uh, Hank who is on the verge of suicide and discovers a body that washes up on shore. And this body has the amazing ability to have compass-like erections and unending flatulence. 
with which Hank is able to um, utilize to change his situation, <laughs> as it were. Um, he, uh, oh, and, and of course our dead friend has no memory of who he was because he's dead, so his name becomes Manny. And it's their kind of misadventures as they as as they both understand one's current life and reimagining what life could be from the perspective of having been dead versus having a shitty life. So <clears throat> okay. It is it is clear that we have very good actors in Paul Dano and Daniel Radcliffe. What I did not like was that despite the fantasy, despite the whimsy, and and I found myself enjoying myself despite, I just, I don't know, fart jokes have never done it for me. Even as a kid, I was the one weird dude who didn't like fart jokes. I don't know. They've just never really done it for me. Seriously? Seriously. Really? I would have think you really, would have been really. like the king about, of I mean, fart about jokes. The only thing, about the only thing that ever got, uh, that, that, that was ever funny, uh, Blazing Saddles. You know? Well, that's like the king, the king of fart jokes right okay. there. So, but yeah, but see, the thing is, is that it was like, what, 35 seconds? Not 97 minutes? He wasn't farting through the whole thing. I know, but he was farting quite a lot. I mean, come on, you can't turn a dead dude into a jet ski. <laughs> so, anyway, all right. Um, so, but despite that, I found myself getting over the outrageousness of that. And, and, and I was buying in. I was buying in. Where it lost me, though, uh, was as the film kind of unfolds in the, like, like I don't know, it's kind of a three-act thing, not a four-act one, I guess. So, yeah, when it unfolds in the finale of the third act and you kind of see where everything kind of falls in place as to what the story is really trying to to divine in terms of um, the characterizations that, that you're seeing, you kind of feel, I, I don't know, for me, I just felt cheated. And I felt like there was so much more that could have been done in terms of journey of discovery, um, odd forms of bucket list items, um, appreciating a world for how you see it, not how it is, um, and not in necessarily a negative connotation, just that you have that ability in you. And it just seemed like it was just such a disappointing way to play it out. And I won't give it away. I'm not going to give away any kind of ending because I think it, despite my review and despite my ultimate scoring on this, I feel it's a movie that should be seen. I don't think that this is a movie that will have you either love it or hate it. That's not fair to this movie. It's a, it's much more complicated to that, uh, than that. And that's to its credit. But I think that you will have to kind of steel yourself to get beyond the uh, farcical nature of Manny um, to get to the heart of the film which the, 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 and the themes that it explores. But I just did not buy into the third act. And so the way that the film kind of um, 
decide the way that the film ends and these are clearly decisions made by Shiner and Quan um I just completely disagree with I think that the film should have taken a different turn um and been and and played out differently especially because of the way that you actually find interesting dynamics within these characters and I just felt like it leads up to a cop out at the end so at the end of the day I give this one 2.75. It is definitely better than okay. I just truly can't say that I liked it. Um, And going into this movie thinking I wasn't going to enjoy it at all and finding that there are parts that are worth watching it for and worth discovering, um, you know, that is definitely kudos to the filmmakers as well. Just do not like the ending. Um, and And it hurt a lot. So... That's what I got to say. And I know Tim is probably like seething and like (laughs) rage over there. No, 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 not not at all. I mean, at least you gave the movie a shot and you, it sounds like you, you came to terms with it being significantly better than what you heard. What was it? Was it at Cannes? The Cannes Film Festival when people were walking out. Yeah, people were like equally walking out of it as much as they were like sticking around to see how it was going to go. Right, yeah. Okay, so there are multiple peoples that will view this movie in in different ways. You have people on the far right who will see this movie and they can't get past the boner compass and the uh, farting, (laughs) the farting corpse. And they just, that that's all they will see. They won't see anything else. They won't see the underlining meaning of the film at all. Then there are people in the middle, like you, who go into it, um, disagree with some of it, don't like certain things, but understands that the movie, there, there's more to the movie uh, than just, you know, boner compasses and, and farting corpses, <laughs> or a farting corpse. But then you have, then, uh, but where I fall into this movie is that I don't think it's perfect. And I don't think anybody will go into this movie thinking it was perfect. My significant other absolutely loved this film because she thought the the story was wonderful. What the story was trying to say was wonderful. And the uh, the emotions, the feeling that this movie evokes is, is absolutely, it's, it's, a, it's a treat, really. And I think a lot of that is due to its beautiful and uplifting soundtrack. But the, is the movie perfect? No, it's not. Especially the ending I did not like. And that's really all I'll say about the ending of the movie. I didn't like the direction it took. But you have to ask yourself, regardless if you liked the movie or uh, you didn't like the movie, you have to ask yourself, how did the movie make you feel? And as I was watching this movie, and especially after leaving the movie, despite me not really caring too much about the final five minutes or so, I left feeling uplifted and more appreciative of life in many ways. Because in this movie, what this movie is trying to tell us is that life is different, life is beautiful, life is serious, and it's confusing. It's all these things all at once. And they show you this, you know, they embody all this stuff with these characters, with the character of Manny, with the corpse, is that he is learning these things. He doesn't understand that, you know, farting is bad you know he doesn't understand you know certain things that he says is bad or certain things that he does is bad you know like the like he doesn't understand that his boner his his boner compass (laughs) how that could be phallic but hank is trying to teach him 
and trying to help him become more aware of these stuff uh, of this of this stuff and as he's doing that manny slowly becomes more human as he understands and but on the other hand hank i yeah, I, I, you know, I, I won't go too much further into detail about character development because that is definitely an important part of the film. Learning more about these two characters, uh, not necessarily why they're there, because you really don't ever find that out to you know uh, to any great extent. But what 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 these characters mean to the audience, mean to each other, and mean for themselves. So uh, I already mentioned the beautiful and uplifting soundtrack that this movie has. Um, the film to me resembles how wonderful life back home is and how precious relationships are because in this movie, Hank is relying on the Swiss army man, Manny played by Daniel Radcliffe. He is relying on him and Manny has these wonderful abilities, though some of them are a little phallic or some of them are a little raunchy, I guess they're able to use this to their advantage. They're both trying to get home. They're trying to go back home, which is what they're pining after, you know, that is what they love. And also it's the people who they love and who they being with that's driving them to get there. And overall, I think that the moral of this movie is that we all have a Swiss army man, uh, you know, in, in our own lives, whether if it's our partner a family member, or even a friend. We all have that. And these people are some of the most important people in our lives. And I think in this movie kind of helps capture the idea, or maybe even remind re- reminds all of us that very thing, that how important these people are, despite how different they can be. So all in all, I thoroughly enjoyed this movie feelings feelings were felt throughout it wonderful uplifting beautiful feelings is the movie perfect again no it's not this movie i think is one that is warrant to be seen by people i want to see it again because i couldn't bring myself to give it a full four stars so i am sitting at 3.75 out of five And I'm looking forward to seeing this movie again this weekend at the theater. So do check out Swiss Army Man and let us know what you think. Awesome. Okay. See, I see when when if you'll notice, right? I went four, three point two five, two point seven five, and then you went three one and a half, three and a half, three point. And I was like, oh man, this is gonna be like, (laughs) this is gonna be like, uh, you know, the thriller in Moviella 2016. Because I thought you were gonna be like four point seven five or five, so no, not quite. Maybe one day. Maybe one day. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. All right. So next week we are uh, due to the funkiness of Matt of Matt travel and hopefully the combination of adding in Miranda and the kitty should they so desire. We are actually only going to be covering. Uh, I guess officially one one movie next week, yes or two. Uh, next week one. We'll, we'll ne- stick okay. with Ghostbusters. Just, all right. So we are definitely going to be talking about Ghostbusters. Um, this is uh, I have been following this movie and its impending release very very closely, and I have seen art and I've been reading. I don't generally do this, but I have been reading lots of articles and watching lots of. Uh, video reviews and stuff as spoiler free as I can get 
And it is interesting to see, I mean, th this movie is probably the most polarizing film of 2016. Um, I would declare that now. And, um, and I think that's why it's so important that we actually see it because, um, not because, not because it deserves necessarily the money or anything like that. But at the same time, I think that this is one of those films where you, you, you're going to have to just see it to decide for yourself what you think. So, uh, we'll be discussing that next week and, that's pretty much the show yeah yeah so i guess uh <laughs> it's time for the spiel is it not sir spiel on all right well the music you've been listening to for segment intros has been our music partners cries of solace you can check them out at reverbnation.com and facebook.com both slash cries of solace as for us we are of course the sls cast and you can find us at slscast.com you can send us an email to the show at slscast.com you can even follow us on twitter at the SLS cast. You can follow me. This is Matt on Twitter at nitwit12345. You can even climb aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that's your heart's desire. Don't forget, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. And thanks to Selena Gomez, this is Matt saying that I get to say this. I believe in second chances, but I don't believe in third or fourth chances. Take care, cinephiles. We'll talk at you again next week. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening.